might have noticed by all the women coming up as a part of the service today, it is um, International Women's Day of Prayer. Now, what is that? Um, the Department of Women's Ministry at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Church um, in 1990, decided to have a Winter National Women's Day of Prayer, a day that promotes prayer for and with women. Um, as a day that we recognize, as Sue so eloquently put, that we all have influential and significant women in our lives, whether it's the women who gave birth to us um, or the women who we have chosen to, to have into our family, into our community, into our friendships. And so um, it's a day that we recognize um, and celebrate and acknowledge these women um, and, and pray for them because women all around the world are facing um, various challenges. And so it's a reminder to, to pray for and to uh, think through and reflect on how we can, as a community, support uh, women around the world. You can find out more if you go to the website. Um, just look up the um, Women's Ministry International Women's Day of Prayer. But also this week, um, on Thursday, the 8th of March, is International Women's Day. And since 1977, the United Nations um, began celebrating the 8th of March. It's been celebrated before that, but on, in 1977 is when they made 8th of March International Women's Day. And they created that day to commemorate and promote women's rights. And so every year there's a diff different theme, and this year's theme is Leave No Woman Behind, examining the vital role that women play in humanitarian and disaster planning and response. So as Sue mentioned, you know, when there's a war, uh, families get separated, um, and women often get left behind um, and, and really um, abused, and, and there's so much trauma that happens to women and children. And so this year's theme um, on International Women's Day is really how can we as a community better support um, women and children and families so that no woman gets left behind and also recognizing all the women like Sue who is involved in humanitarian aid around the world um, and uh, a, a way to promote that. So um, the Department of Women's Ministry actually writes out sermons for International Women's Day of Prayer and the sermon topic was called God Understands. It's a lovely sermon but I wanted to talk about something else today. I wanted us to explore um, a topic that's been on my mind since October, um, and you would recognize the hashtag MeToo because it's been in the media and social media especially. Um, and just as a reminder of fresher, the MeToo movement, um, and, and the phrase MeToo actually was created by a woman named Tarana Burke, um, and she wanted to empower women through empathy, this idea that MeToo, I've been through that um, as well, especially for young and vulnerable women. But this hashtag became viral in October of last year when actress Elisa Milano used it to tell her story about the um, tell her story publicly about the sexual assault and misconduct of Harvey Weinstein. And so this she 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 tweeted it and she said, "If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem." Now she put this up and went to sleep. Next day she woke up and thousands of people had retreated. And within just three weeks, over 2.3 million women used that hashtag to tell their story in over 85 countries in just three weeks. Now it's been, what, almost four months? And so you can imagine that it's been uh, shared a lot more than that. The facts are sad and sobering, but um, here they are. 
35% of women around the world have experienced physical or sexual violence. This isn't just assault. This is actual violence. Um, and, and if you looked at the actual different countries, um, some countries are, have as many as 70%, um, and sometimes more, of course, because not everybody reports. 120 million girls have experienced forced sexual or sexual assault, uh, sexual acts. And to bring it home here to Australia, one in five w Australian women have experienced sexual violence not just harassment. So why are we talking about this today? Well, I believe that it is so important for us as a church, as Christians, as a community, to be at the forefront of championing a change. These facts um, should not be how the world is. And we should not blink an eye and say, oh, well, that's just how it is. We should care because God has created men and women to be um, in the image of God, to have dignity to have worth and we should be providing that for each other if we truly want to follow jesus not only should we understand how jesus treated them but we must treat them as he did and we must understand the bible properly um one of my pet peeves is when people think that the bible portrays a negative view of women that's one of my pet peeves because unfortunately um, there's so much misrepresentation of the Bible. And so a lot of people come to that conclusion without even really properly looking at the, the text for themselves. And it's also true that the Bible has very challenging texts about women. Um, later this year, I'm going to be addressing some of the more difficult texts. Today, I want to focus on how Jesus gives voice to the victims, especially the women victims in the Bible. And I can't go through all the passages, but I'm just highlighting a few. And I want us to look at those passages and, and look not just for the sake of this narrow topic of, of violence against women, but in general of looking at how Jesus upholds the dignity and worth of every individual and how we as a community, community can do the same and how we can lend our voice to those who haven't uh, been able to speak up for themselves. And so the first story that I want us to briefly examine is one that um, I'm not going to read because there are little years here, but I'll just give you the reference for it. It's Judges chapter 19. I'll just narrate kind of generally about it. If you want to, you can read it in its graphic detail later. This is a, a story that I call the worst story in the Bible. And I've actually preached on this um, several years ago. So if you want to hear more about this particular story on our website, you can search for the worst story in the Bible. That's the title of the sermon. Um, and you can hear the podcast. Basically, this story is about a woman who not only gets abused, but gets murdered. Um, and it happens in the most cruel way. And there are no heroes. There are no happy endings. There are no redeeming factors, it seems, in this story. Some Bible commentaries even recommend not reading it. That's how bad the story is. Okay? Now, I wanted to bring this story up because this is the ugliest story you could probably find in the Bible, the worst story of how a woman gets treated. And it's so terrible, especially because even, the, even the, um, her husband, who's actually a religious leader, who's supposed to protect her, actually puts her in harm's way. And so you would think to yourself, why is this story in the Bible? And, and people would point to that story and say, there you go. There's proof that um, the Bible portrays women negatively. But that's an unfair accusation. Because think about movies like or stories like Schindler's List. Okay? 
Schindler's List portrays an atrocious crime against humanity, the Holocaust, and all that came with it. And nobody points to the director or the writer of Schindler's List and says, you guys are against humanity or against women or against children. No, because they're actually portraying how terrible um, people treated each other. And they're bringing this to, to your attention by recording it, by narrating it, by, by filming it, by, and saying, we need to do better. So in the same way, the Bible has these ugly, real stories, not to endorse those, but to actually say, this is what happens when humanity becomes selfish. This is what happens when humanity rejects God's principles of love and service and instead follow their own hearts, follow, follow the culture, follow the, the, um, the selfishness that becomes corrupted and becomes evil. And so these stories are there because they're there as models of what not to do. And I really respect the fact that God decides not only to record this story, right? He, he um, inspired the writer of Judges to write it in its ugliest detail without apology because he's giving voice to this victim. During a time, you have to remember that during this time, this kind of thing happened all the time. It was prevalent in that culture. But God doesn't say, oh, well, that was just part of the culture. He actually says, hey, this is wrong. And he allows her voice posthumously to live on. And not only did he inspire that particular writer to record that story, but he made sure that story was preserved throughout thousands of years. It would have been so easy for the scribes as they were copying right, the scriptures hand by hand to say, oh, this is, this is a really embarrassing story for us. This is a story that looks really bad for God's people. Let's leave this one out. In fact, let's leave the whole book of Judges. We accidentally lost that one, right? How easy would it have been for the scribes to sweep this story under the rug like so many churches do today? of all the misconduct and allegations that they embarrassingly hide, right? But that's not what happened. God made sure that this story and all the other stories in the Bible that are difficult and challenging and confrontational, God makes sure that those stories remained, that they were handed down from generation to generation because God wants to make sure that the misdeeds of his leaders and his people are not hushed up but that the perpetrator's moral downfall is publicly shared and that the victims have a voice to share what happened and so that we don't fall into that same trap. And so it's so important for us to remember that stories like Judges 19 and many others, right, as you come across it, as its harshness makes you uncomfortable, Realize that God is trying to help us see that sinfulness, selfishness, right? It is hurtful. It is uncomfortable. It should make us want to do something. It should make us want something better. The book of Judges tells one bad story after another, and then the whole book kind of concludes with this verse. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's actually the refrain found throughout the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And I see so much of that in our society today. That, that when everyone kind of says, you know what, there is no moral standard, right? We're not going to follow God's standards. Everyone, let's just do what you think is right. And when it sounds good, but what happens is when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there's going to be pain because someone is going to hurt someone else thinking that, well, that's okay for them. And that can be something as simple as um, stepping over someone to get that promotion or making fun of someone, bullying them, or harassing them on the streets, and, and then it escalates from there. And so are all these stories just there to depress us and to tell us how things are? Because we can see that in the news, right? The Bible doesn't leave us just in the reality and just in the ugliness. Right after that last verse in Book of Judges where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king, there was no one ruling and judging and guiding them, we get to the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is the very next page. So the very next sentence that you see um, in the Book of Ruth, right after um, all those terrible stories, says, During the days when the judges ruled, that's during the Book of Judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. And then the book of Ruth goes on to tell this beautiful redemption story of this young woman named Ruth. She's the hero. She's the heroine of the story. And she basically, because of her courage and because of her faithfulness, goes on to not only save her family from starvation, um, works in the fields um, with her own hands to, to make a future for herself and her mother-in-law, actually proposes first to the man and ends up mothering um, the future ancestor of King David. So the entire book of Ruth is, is about how she, because of her, later on, King David comes. A king who is able to bring about some restoration of following God's principles of love and service. Brings about some restoration for the nation. But even King David is not perfect. In fact, it turns out that he also sexually abuses a woman named Bathsheba. And terrible things happen in that family and to the nation and to God's people. So then are we left once again without hope? The Bible goes on. In the first chapter of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, there is a genealogy that mentions both Ruth and David and others and ultimately says that we get to Jesus Christ who is a descendant of Ruth and the others who have come before him. And this is where the Bible gives us that hope. Finally, we have a king who does not abuse his power, a king who treats everyone with respect and dignity and honor, and a king who follows God wholeheartedly and lives out the principles of love and service in his life and shows us how we can do the same. So how did Jesus treat women? Biblical scholars, when they look at the uh, New Testament accounts of Jesus and they compare that with other literary works of his time, are astounded because there is no other literary work in that first century um, of Roman Empire you know, time period that has so many positive references to women. And they look at how Jesus treated women and the, all the accounts of women. And if you can do the same thing, you can look up, you know, on Bible Gateway, women in the New Testament and look up all the verses. And Jesus is constantly encouraging, affirming, and upholding women. 
In fact, during a time when rabbis or teachers only had men as their disciples, right? Only only the um, the boys were educated in the synagogues past a certain age, um, and then from there the rabbis would pick the brightest and the best to be his pupils and his students and his disciples. The Bible says that Jesus had yes, he his twelve. Um, men disciples but he also had other disciples besides 12 men and women so we we find out in luke um, that jesus traveled through the cities and villages preaching and proclaiming the good news of god's kingdom the 12 were with him along with some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses among them were mary magdalene from whom seven demons have been cast out joanna the wife of herod's servant chusa susanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources and so these women disciples um, went with Jesus and provided for him and made sure that not only were they cooking for him, but they were actually learning from him. They weren't just there in the kitchen. In fact, there's a, I love this story of how there's two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus is in their home. And Martha goes in the kitchen and starts cooking and preparing for all the men and all the people who are there. And Mary is with Jesus and the other disciples learning from him. So Martha comes over and puts her hands on her hips and she's like, Jesus, tell, tell Mary to come help me. I'm doing all this work for myself. And I love Jesus' answer. He says, Martha, Martha. And that's in theological terms, that's called a double vocative. When someone says your name twice, but it's, it's, like, it's that compassionate, loving, Martha, Martha. You are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. Did you catch that? Jesus, like all the other men in that time period, didn't say, go back in the kitchen, right? But instead, and and, and tell Mary, you know, go join your husband, or your sister, sorry. But instead, Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen a better thing. By being with me, by learning from me, by by being um, my disciple, it's actually more important than what you're doing in the kitchen. This is completely countercultural. Women in that time period were not allowed to learn in that way, and especially theologically. They were in the home, they would take care of their children, but they did not have any place in theology, in teaching, in learning. But here's Jesus turning that all upside down. And saying, I want these women to be my disciples. In fact, after Jesus died and resurrected, the um, book of Acts records how 120 disciples gather for prayer. And it specifically mentions that there are men and women who received the Holy Spirit and went out preaching um, and teaching the gospel. Jesus constantly in his life, through various miracles, liberated and affirmed women. He healed them through touch and word. He presented them as models of faith. And he gave them a voice when no one else did. For example, one day when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, sorry, in the temple in Jerusalem, a group of political and religious leaders came to Jesus, dragging a woman half naked through the streets and throwing her at the feet of Jesus. And they wanted to trap him. And this is uh, recording the book of John. They said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? 
They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the women, the woman was left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, don't sin anymore. This story illustrates how Jesus protected this woman whom he knew was a victim of abuse and manipulation. Yes, she was caught in the act of adultery, but Jesus knew that there was more to the story than that. And he knew that in that time period, according to the law of Moses, that when someone is accused of adultery, there has to be two or three witnesses. And not just that, but those two or three witnesses had to catch the person in the act but you see, there's another law that said that if you see someone sinning, you are obliged to stop them. And so for these two or three witnesses to have witnessed this act, but had not stopped them, but instead waited till everything was confirmed and then brought not the two, but just the woman, Jesus knew this was all a trap. Because it was required for both of them to be brought to justice. But here they were dragging just her. So Jesus, knowing that this is a trap, not just for himself, but also for her, identifies with her, lifts her up, and makes all those who condemned her go away. And I love how Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you either. Right? Of all the people, Jesus had the right to condemn, but he chooses not to. He gives her a voice and empowers her to live in the freedom that comes now from living according to God's principles instead of according to the cultural norm. Jesus defends her another time. In the book of Luke, it records that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. And after he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner." And everyone's grumbling. What, you know, how could Jesus allow her to touch him? There were very strict codes in that time about men and women touching each other. Jesus was a single man. Here is this woman who was known to have been with many men. And here she comes touching him. And, and everyone is thinking to themselves, why is Jesus allowing this and criticizing the woman? In another version of the story, it says that they were also criticizing her for wasting so much perfume. This perfumed oil that she brought was about $300 worth today. And so they're saying to themselves, oh, she could have given this money to the poor. Jesus stands up for her and says, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. I tell you the truth that wherever in the world the good news is announced, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus stands up for her. 
He could have just been silent, or he could have just quietly rebuked them. But he stands up for her, and this was such an important event that his disciples later on record this story in multiple versions of the gospel. Jesus left a legacy for this woman by affirming her worth and her works. He wasn't afraid of breaking cultural norms and traditions in order to give her and others who were vulnerable a voice and a role in fulfilling God's work. Here's another example. In John chapter 4, there's a, a story of a woman um, who is Samaritan. And she comes to the well. But she comes at a very odd hour of the day. Usually, um, women would come to draw water in the morning or at night when the sun is not so hot. And they have to walk carrying this heavy jar of water. But this woman comes at noon when it's the hottest time of day. Because she doesn't want to see anyone. She doesn't want to talk to anyone. Because she's someone who has been rejected and hurt so many times and judged that she doesn't want to deal with that when she just wants to come, get her water, and go. But the Bible says that Jesus purposely comes to this town, to this well, sits down, and waits. And when she comes along, he starts a conversation with her. And she's shocked. When you read the story, it says that she, she, she's stunned and she turns to him and says, You, a Jewish man, is asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? And Jesus is like, yeah. And he goes on to just talk with her. And more surprisingly, as I mentioned before, they did not discuss theology with women. But Jesus discusses theology with her. And not just any theology. Not just, you know, about the beliefs and doctrines, but he does something that he had never done before. He says to her, I am the Messiah. This is the only time, the first and only time um, in Jesus' ministry where he is so clear about his mission and his role. And not just that, but he does something very surprising in the story. He says to her, I want you to bring your husband here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man that you are with now is not your husband. And, you know, if we look at that story through today's context, we think she's someone who's, you know, been like a loose woman, Elizabeth Taylor, like has had many husbands and she kind of flings them aside. But that is not the correct reading of the Bible. You have to go back and look at the historical context. In her day, women were not allowed to divorce, period. Only men had the right to divorce. Women had no rights. They were considered like property. And so men would divorce women for multiple reasons, one of which was if for some reason, um, they were just displeased with the wife or if the woman couldn't have children. There were various reasons and the man could divorce her. And in that time period, women didn't get to work for their livelihood. And so if they were divorced and they didn't have any male relative to support them, they would die. They would starve. And so she would have no choice but to wait for someone else to come and marry her and redeem her and, and support her. So this is not a loose woman. This is a woman who has been abandoned five times. This is a woman who has been hurt five times. My guess is that she couldn't have any children 
because um, she she continues to remarry and continues to not have anyone support her. In fact, the man that she's with now is not her husband. So he's someone who is probably taking advantage of her, but is not giving her the legal protection of his name. Not giving her, her the, the legal protection of his home. She's just with him because she has nowhere else to go. So Jesus brings this up to let her know, you are not alone. You have not been abandoned by God. I came here just for you. And I came here to tell you that I am the Messiah. And I came to meet you at this well. In the Bible, in Jewish and, you know, in in that history, wells was was a symbol of a wedding. The well is where um, Jacob met Rachel. The well is where... um, Isaac's servant met Rebecca for Isaac. The well is a place that symbolizes marriage. And so Jesus at the well is telling this woman, I care about you. I'm going to provide a future for you. I'm going to commit myself to you when no man has. And so giving her a chance to tell her story, giving her a chance to say, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. And Jesus says, you know what? I already know all about that. And I love you and you are precious and you are worthy. And Jesus gives her then the commission to go and share that. In fact, he doesn't even just say it so explicitly. Here's what the text says. It says that the woman put down the pot, right? The jar that she had brought to get water. She forgets all about it. She runs into the city. She says to the people, here she finds a voice. Here's a woman who were avoiding people by going to the well at 12 o'clock. But instead now she runs to the people. She had found a voice. She's found the courage. She's found a mission. She says, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. She became the first evangelist. She became the first to publicly tell her community that Jesus is the Messiah. It wasn't an accident that Jesus came to Samaria. It wasn't an accident that he met with her. It wasn't an accident that he chose her to be his voice. In fact, after Jesus died and resurrected, who were the first to find out that Jesus was alive? Who were the first to see Jesus alive? Matthew tells us, and the other Gospels as well, that after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. Look, there was a great earthquake, and an angel from the Lord came down from heaven. Coming to the stone, he rolled it away and sat on it. Now his face was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so terrified of him that they shook with fear and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, who, by the way, didn't faint like the men, Don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He isn't here because he's been raised from the dead, just as he said. Come, see the place where they laid him. Now hurry, go and tell his disciples he's been raised from the dead. He's going on ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. I've given the message to you. Okay? The message was given to these women. With great fear and excitement, they hurried away from the tomb and ran to tell his disciples. But Jesus met them and greeted them. 
They came and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, these are the women, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers that I'm going into Galilee. They will see me there. In fact, it takes a while for Jesus to appear to the eleven. I think he does that on purpose. He kind of delays. And when he finally does get to them, he rebukes them. He rebukes them and says, Finally he appeared to the eleven while they were eating. And Jesus criticized their unbelief and stubbornness because they didn't believe those who saw him after he was raised up. The disciples, the, the other male disciples, didn't believe the women's testimony. And Jesus says, Hey, why didn't you believe them? Once again, giving the women a voice, affirming their voice, and saying, I've chosen them to share my message. You need to work with them. In fact, in the first century, many women leaders had a significant role in the spread of Christianity. There were many women leaders that worked alongside Apostle Paul, women like Priscilla, Phoebe, Junia. We're going to talk more about them later this year. Jesus not only gave women a voice during his ministry on earth, but also after um, he resurrected and went back up to heaven. But he also gives women a voice today. He continues to empower women to speak the truth, to share their stories, and to share his story. And the truth is that even if we don't feel like we can share our stories publicly, God says, talk to me. I'll listen. Share your story with me. Because he understands Jesus, too, knows what it's like to be physically assaulted, to be stripped naked, to be publicly humiliated, to be mocked and mistreated and misrepresented, and to be in so much pain that you cannot speak. When Jesus died on the cross, he, too, became a victim. He became weak. He became a statistic. But the good news is that through the resurrection, Jesus became a survivor. He became strong. He became a game changer. And he offers all victims today that same power that resurrected him from the grave, the power to live an abundant life as survivors, as children of God, worthy, precious, and beautiful. So go ahead and tell his story. And tell your story. And find healing and hope in Jesus' compassion and care. And as your voice grows stronger, tell the story of others who cannot speak for themselves like Rachel Den Hollander remember how a few weeks ago I shared how she was a, one of the many victims of Dr. Um, Larry Nasser, the Olympian doctor who abused hundreds of girls for decades and I read you her um, victim statement so I'm not going to do that again I do encourage you to go read it but um in a follow-up interview that she did with Christianity Today, because in her victim statement, she, she mentions how, um, as a result, she lost her church. And in an interview with um, Christianity Today, she follows up by explaining how when she tried to stand up for the um, abused victims in her own church, how she was vilified and pressured and bullied and misrepresented. Uh, and um, she basically ends up leaving that church and, and she found another church that was accepting and that was supportive. Um, but in the interview at the end, um, she says there's two things she wants Christians to understand. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. It defies the gospel of Christ when we do not call out abuse and enable abuse in our own church. 
Jesus Christ does not need your protection. He needs your obedience. Obedience means that you pursue justice and you stand up for the oppressed and you stand up for the victimized and you tell the truth about the evil of sexual assault and the evil of covering it up. Second, that obedience costs. It means that you will have to speak out against your own community. It will cost to stand up for the oppressed and it should. If we're not speaking out when it costs, then it doesn't matter to us enough. She actually inspired another victim who was in the shadows for a long time to speak up. In fact, um, not only did she, was she inspired by Rachel, but she um, is a Messianic Jew, and she was reading the story of Esther, which is found in the Bible, a story of, of a woman who was also abused herself but and, and was being... Um, her and her people were being threatened that she decides to risk everything to have the courage to speak up and do something about it. And reading that story directly influenced her to come forth and accuse um, Dr. Nesser. And she shares that um, also in, her, in that interview that she does. We have a responsibility and the privilege of standing up for those who are victimized. The Seventh-day Adventist Church in Australia is committed to providing a safe place for you in our churches and our communities. If for any reason you want to find out more information or if you have an allegation um, or information, there's a dedicated Safe Places website and phone number that you can call or go to. You can even report online. We um, as a church are committed to making sure that every person who comes to our churches not only feels safe but feels empowered to do something if they see injustice, if they see misconduct. I pray that we will follow Jesus' example of standing up for the victimized, even when it costs us. I pray that we will learn to listen to those who for so long have been silent, who for so long have been silenced. I pray that we will create a safe place where everyone can tell not just their stories, but also feel incredibly loved and accepted. I pray that we can challenge and change the culture, that Christians everywhere can be known for being the champion of human rights. I pray that, like Jesus, we can share his story with united voices. As a song of reflection plays, I, will, I want to invite you to just close your eyes and silently pray for the women in your lives um, and for women around the world that... They can continue to be strong, that they can continue to be safe, but also for us to, um, to really seek ways that we can support and empower those women and make our communities a safer place for everyone. And so I just want to invite you on this International Day of Women's Day of Prayer to close your eyes and pray for the women who matter to you.